Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. I suppose it's Tuesday, April 11th. That sounds right. 2023. Yeah. Okay. I'll go for that. Running around. Yeah, busy. We're busy. We're busy, but we're, we're, we're here. We're going to, uh, we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about because I took Dale, you, I took calm you, calm down, took calm you to down. the movies. We don't have a lot to talk We do. About. Twice. Twice. You saw two films last week. Two films. Yes. We saw The Quiet Girl. Yes. The Quiet Girl. We've been meaning to see The Quiet Girl. We mentioned The Quiet Girl. Because it's a foreign film. It's a foreign language film. Yes. It's a foreign language film because in addition to English, they speak Irish, which I didn't really know exactly was a language. You seem to know that. And it's, you know, we've been in Ireland. We heard people speak it. That's, you know, we had it spoken I'm, to us. Did we? Yeah. Did we? Every once in a while. I don't remember. John that. would slip into it. John was our guide. Uh, yeah, we probably thought we were Irish. But in any event, um, it's a very simple story. Uh, about uh, a young girl who uh, lives in a home where uh, people don't pay much attention to her. The parents are overwhelmed. They have a lot of kids. They don't seem to have that much money. Uh, she's not really in a nurturing environment, to be honest, and she's not flourishing. And the story... And there's another child on the way. Yes. So it's and only going to get... in mind. The uh, parents, her parents, decide that she can spend the summer with their cousins, a slightly older couple who do not have a child. And under the, uh, you know, stewardship of uh, the slightly older couple in a different surrounding. Uh, Don't give it away. Okay. She does better. <laughs> well, it's, it's anyway, not, it's it's not, not suspenseful, Tamsin. Well, it's, it's not about the plot anyway. No, it's not. Uh, that, well, that's the thing. It's not about the it's plot. It's about people and relationships and, and scenery. Scenery. Well, it's, it's a, a beautiful... It is beautiful, but you know, oh. unlike you, the scenery doesn't wouldn't do it for me. I can't watch a movie and say, "Well, that was worth it because of the scenery." No, but it contributes to what's going on. Listen, okay? I, listen, but I'm it's not a visual experience criticizing the movie. I liked the movie. I very much liked the movie. Uh, it's very heartfelt. It's very affecting, uh, and you know, uh, you can't help but be carried away. At least I couldn't. You know. I, it's it's funny because it's hard to talk about it because it's it's so simple, um, but uh, I was wondering who the audience is for that movie. We always ask ourselves this after the film, you know, who's the audience, and uh, you know what I think honestly, uh, I think it's grandparents. I think it's grandparents to some degree. Well, I'll and, tell you, and good because they're the only people still going to the movie. That could be right. But the reason I say that is because the uh, you know parents are so overwhelmed, or many of them are, or busy at least. And uh, you know, I guess they're going to identify a little bit with the couple that can't really take care of this child. And uh, the grandparents are going to identify with a couple that takes her in, that has the time. I don't know if it's about identifying with well, anybody. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, look, I'm a grandparent, and I was moved. I was moved. You were laughing, but you were moved also. Were <laughs> yes, you moved? Yes, of course, I, I was moved. Yeah. And uh, they, we actually, we went uh, to see it in the afternoon, yeah. late afternoon. And this time, at least, there were two other people in two the Two other theater. people, in the, yes. And we paid and retail. And on our way out, yeah. one of them turned to me and said, well, that was intense. Yeah. And what did you say? Well, I... I know what you said. You said yes, but it was a very sweet movie. 
And they said, yes, it was. I, I meant sweet, not in the sense of cute sweet, but it was, as you said, endearing. Moving. Moving. And and they agreed. And, and they agreed. So 100% of the people in the theater, four of us, <laughs> uh, went for the film. And it's not like it's not acclaimed. You know, it was nominated for Best uh, International Film at the Academy Awards, and it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the BAFTA Awards, which was the English Awards. So it was a foreign language film. In both cases, it lost out to All Quiet on the Western Front, which you can imagine, because that's a much celebrated film. But in any event, uh, we recommend it. We recommend it. That's all I can say. The Quiet Girl. The Quiet Girl. Not The Quiet Man. No, The Quiet... I recommend The Quiet Man, too, but that's an entirely different thing. And then, and then, as if that's not enough, as if our week was not already filled with film, we went to another movie a couple of days later, and we saw The Lost King. I'll let you describe The Lost King, because that's a little more of your movie anyway. So go ahead, The Lost yeah. King. Well, I've been dying to see The Lost King. I had read about it uh, in um, my history magazine, mm-hmm. the BBC History Magazine, and uh, so I've been waiting for it. And it's a story of finding the bones of Richard III, King Richard III, and which I knew about as a history. It's, it's a true, it's based on a true story. Right. And, uh, you know, I was aware that the bones of Richard III had indeed been found in a parking lot. Okay. Um, and uh, so I was, uh, you know, I had read about it at the time when it was announced and so forth. So I was curious about this. And um, the uh, woman who spearheaded, it's really the story of the, this one woman becoming obsessed with the Finding Richard III. And what's interesting is she's not a historian. She's got no professional connection with this kind of thing. Right. She's she got no a, credentials. She, she's, she's got... a journalist. It, was she even a journalist? I didn't even catch that. I was in, I thought she was like selling things online or something. I don't know what she was doing. But it wasn't a high-powered job. Okay. And, uh, and she had chronic fatigue syndrome beside. I mean, she really seemed, uh, you know, up against it to some degree. Anyway... Played by Sally Hawkins, who's always very good. Right. And uh, also in it is Steve Coogan, right. who uh, we always love. Yeah. And um, anybody else important in it? Uh, well, let's see. Harry Lloyd. Harry Lloyd played the king. Uh, I don't know. We haven't seen him too much, but he was a good-looking king. You know what's interesting about this movie? It's directed by Stephen Frears. Yes. That's what I was thinking of. So Stephen Frears... I mean, he's been directing movies for a long time. He did The Grifters a million years ago. He's uh, going to be 82 years old in a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, celebrated director, though. And uh, it was it was enjoyable. I enjoyed it. It was enjoyable. It was uh, completely entertaining. So it takes you through the story of her, you know, um, becoming obsessed and the, in the throes of her obsession and uh, how she manages to... Uh, corral people into doing, finding, helping, helping her. her find. They're helping her, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, she's got to, uh, at a certain point, she's got, to, she's got to kind of talk people into even being hired well, by she, her. But she and then no... she's got to raise the money. And, right. and people sort of, you know, institutions or, you know, kind of, promise money and then they back off and, and she's so a so zealot on. i mean and she has no uh credibility honestly right. 
And um, that is because of her, because of her crowdfunding. She, yes, she has this laser you know, focus on getting this done. And, as a Ricardian, I mean, what, what's odd too is that she keeps fantasizing that she's seeing King Richard the Third. And and in the movie, in the know, movie, I don't know. I, I mean, didn't I, read the book. You so couldn't make she that. She wrote up. a book about this experience. Yeah, it's based she, on a book. Um, and so I don't know if that was true or not. Uh, that she was. Imagining well, them. you know, the other thing is, but that I, was kind of fun. I enjoyed the movie, but um, it had to resonate a little more with a with, with an English audience. I just imagine yes. they, they, yes. they would care more about yeah. finding Richard the Third. Well, and just different aspects of yeah. it, like you know whether or not the coat of arms is on right. his tombstone. And it's also, I mean, we just don't get that stuff. And it's also about restoring his reputation. Yes. She's she's trying to. She feels he's unfairly maligned by Shakespeare. But he really was a good king and a deserving, uh, deserving of the throne, and so that's all play also. And she turns and, that and around. And he didn't murder his nephews. Yeah. So well, now like we're that. getting deeply. Right. These are these are uh, anyway, spoilers. It's, it's entertaining. Yeah. It's British. It's light. So you have the accents. You even have Scottish uh, accents. I know. And let me guess. You have everything you love. Very about nice that. scenery too. And, and um, you have the kind of British sensibilities. I mean, there's, there's this odd relationship she has. With her husband, her ex-husband. Is that British? You think there's that's British? The notion that she's it living with her European ex-husband? more European than American, the way they all sort through things. I don't know. That. I don't know. So, so anyway, it's perfectly entertaining. Mm-hmm. I would not say it stirred the cockles of my heart yeah. um, in the way the quiet girl did. Right. Uh, but it's, there, you know. Completely uh, yeah. entertaining it's way good. to spend. I mean, it's not on hours. on the waterfront, but it's you know, it's it's good. Uh, all right, so let's get down to the shoes because it's the all about the shoes. King, the lost king, the lost king, the shoes, Damson. Right, the shoes. You are now wearing the most fashionable, hottest, trendiest shoes going. How did you manage that? I don't even know, but it's true. It's crazy. It's true. I tell you, hocus, hocus, hocus. So I, I was having some foot trouble. Okay. Yeah. Um, largely because, well, why why should we even go into it? But I don't I even know to, why. I, you know, I actually went to a doctor. I yeah. went to uh, my orthopedic guy, and he said, you got to get hocus. Yeah. And um, I said, really? And he said, you got to get them because it, the stiff sole is great for supporting your foot. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's weird. Because I'm reading all these things about saying uh, what you really need to do is go barefoot. That your foot needs to know, needs to experience what it's walking over. And, you know, that maintains its agility. It's, uh, you know, the connection between the foot and the brain, what's going on, uh, etc. and so forth. So this was at the other end of the spectrum. Long story short, I got the hokas. And? And it works. They're right? really pretty good. Yeah, they're really pretty. They look good. like they have super support, uh, and they, uh, you know, I'm not going to say they're they look orthopedic, but they have an awful lot of soul. Yes, they have a lot of soul, which makes it surprising that anybody but older people who have traveled with their feet would be. But that's the it. amazing thing about them. They have two constituencies, and they even say that in this article that we have. They say, yeah. It's, they tell a story about someone who needed help of the type, type you described who was a little bit of an older person, and uh, this person's daughter resisted it when it was recommended. Uh, it wasn't even an older person. It was just uh, a mature individual. All right. You know? Someone with a daughter. Yes, someone and, with and, a daughter. And the daughter and, says... And she's a doctor, and so she's on her feet, a fair amount. Right. She said, I would never she's be caught dead in them. these. And, and then she comes around, 
and uh, other people are coming around, and they're good for running. Right. So they were developed yeah. by a um, a group of like athletes mm-hmm. and uh, you know designers, mm-hmm. and uh, with the idea being that they were for trail running, mm-hmm. and the thick soles had more to do with uh, being able to navigate running downhill, yeah. uh, as opposed to any kind of uh, fashion statement, etc. And uh, they really they came on the market in about 2010, and you know they they finally caught on. Well, they eventually caught on. I mean, in 2010, they were showing them at some, you know, what do you call it? Trade show. Trade show. Yeah. And some one person was so uh, interested, one runner, that he bought 770 pairs. Well, that's a lot of shoes. Well, he was going to sell them. I don't, right. I don't think he was going to wear them all. But, you know, slowly, inch by inch, all kinds of celebrities all wear them. Britney uh, Spears you know. wears them. Britney Spears. Well, she wore them. And you. She wore them. She was an early adopter. You and Britney Spears are wearing the same shoes. No, I don't even know that she's wearing them anymore. Now that since they've come down to my level. (laughs) The doctor recommends that I wear them for surgery. I wear them to be on my feet. So they they come in all different crazy colors now. And um, I do. I have to say when I first started wearing them, I only saw them on old people. Well, but I wasn't really looking. That's because you only see old people. But that's... people did say, younger people did say, those are pretty cool that's shoes. Right. People comment on your shoes all the time. This that is crazy. We're out weird. and people say, oh, where'd you get those shoes? And I'm saying to myself, really? They're looking at your shoes? They're your sneakers? Hoka's. Okay. So try them out. They're a little bit expensive, but they're cheaper than going to you the know, doctor. They're not that expensive. They might be $10 more than what you'd expect. But uh, they're, they're okay. You know, you're the kind of guy who likes to pay... Forty nine ninety five. I'm not uh, at Kohl's I'd, for a p- pair of sneakers. They are not forty nine ninety five. I understand. They're that. not even fifty nine ninety five. This is fashion wear. Okay, this is fashion. This You're is gonna not pay fashion. more. I'm not wearing them for fashion. I know. I'm wearing them to keep Listen, moving. No one comments on my Kohl's shoes. Moving, moving, moving. They they comment on your hokas, so it's it's worth it's worth the money. All right. So then you have uh, something that's not popular, not popular anymore, which is milk. Yeah, the New York Times, I don't know. Uh, people have not been drinking milk for a while. Well, they're saying, yeah, they eventually get around to saying that. But uh, milk consumption is down. But what's interesting to me, you know, the article's about uh, what the milk industry is going to do to try to restore their sales to previous levels. And, they're, you know, of course, they want to get certain celebrities or certain athletes or certain competitors and marathon runners, whatever. they got all kinds of ideas. Probably none yeah, of them will work. They- the, but, the article starts out talking about one representative um, that they hired, a 24-year-old marathoner. And she's on um, billboards. From Generation Z. Generation Turns Z. Turns out she doesn't really drink milk. No. That's, she that's, really prefers... Just the publicity uh, that the Times... Non-dairy uh, milk. The milk people needed. So, so this is the thing. Yeah. Uh, but it's got... To some extent, yeah. it's the non-dairy thing. Yeah. Right? People have it in their minds... That uh, cow's milk is unhealthy, and that almond milk, oat yeah, milk, but, soy but that's milk a bad rap. are better. But that's right, a- right. And then, you know, every every few months, 
the Times has an article about uh, is you know plant based milk uh, nutritional, and it, always the answer is not really. It doesn't right. have doesn't nearly pack nearly the punch that cow's milk does in terms of nutrition. But it, but that's not the issue anyway. They say they're they're not losing sales. They, they, you still sell much more milk than, than true. Milk. True, they're the not real issue, losing out. People but, are drinking instead right. uh, energy drinks, soda, coffee. Drinks. And they're trying to promote it as, you know, one of the first great energy drinks. Which I, you know, I remember seeing those ads saying chocolate milk restores everything in a way nothing else does. It's better than Gatorade, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's why our grandchildren, I think, must be drinking chocolate milk. <laughs> that's why Hazi's that yeah. fit as a fellow. You know, no, but the, the other thing about it is that uh, milk just got a bad rap. And they actually say at some point, uh, this may be exaggerated, they say they lost a generation of milk drinkers. Because people got into the idea that school children shouldn't drink whole milk. They should drink instead skim milk or something, some 1% milk or something like that. And the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010. The federal government screws. Removed whole or 2% milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The federal government screws up things again. So the point, according to this, a whole generation of school children said, that stuff stinks. Who wants to drink that? Because they're drinking the 1% or they're drinking the skim milk. Which really does not... Tastes nearly as good. And it's not as good for you. So, that they, you know, they're under the impression, the mistaken impression that this product is bad news. If only they had not been diverted from whole milk, everything would be cool. Eric Adams, yeah, mayor oh, of New York, a <laughs> vegan, yeah. has been floating the idea of banning yeah. chocolate milk. The idea that Eric school. Adams is in charge of people's nutrition is kind of frightening. And, I mean, I understand he lost a lot of weight because he started eating vegetables and this chewed meat, but that doesn't make him... The uh, the expert on nutrition that he thinks he is. Look, I, I'm sympathetic to the milk cause. I think it actually got a bad rap. I think it's fine. And uh, but it's weird. I mean, I'm people do talk about it's a dairy thing, but then they also say, and then for younger people, for like Generation Z, etc., yeah. um, they're saying, uh, you know, interesting. They they're anti dairy, but they're still eating cheese and, yogurt. and ice cream and yogurt. And yogurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, so on and so no, forth. It's Look, just, my mother, milk is her drink of choice. And how old is your mother? Say it. 98. 98. 98. 98. So if it's a problem, it, it, it better manifest itself soon or else and I don't uh, we're going to wonder. ever broken a boat. Yeah. Well, well no, maybe you, she has. She broke, I wouldn't she be, broke something I wouldn't be saying stuff like that. Once, yeah. But um, yeah, so there right. you have it. So here's something else. Scapegoated. Was Calamari scapegoated in a championship run? So we watched the basketball, the NCAA finals, and I... You may recall I said to you, there's this one guy, this is in the semifinal game, only one guy in the in the final four who's going to be a first-round NBA draft choice. He's a player named Jordan Hawkins who played for Connecticut. And in the semifinal game, he was compromised. They said he had a stomach problem. Connecticut still won the game. And uh, uh, he was fine the next game in the final. Connecticut won the tournament. But uh, the story was that he had food poisoning. Food poisoning for that semifinal game, which could have really screwed Connecticut up. And what was it that caused the food poisoning, according to Jordan Hawkins in Connecticut? It was the calamari. They had ordered food from a restaurant called Mastro's. There's no way for him to know, really. What he said was, it was the calamari. That's what he said, okay? Now, I agree with you. There's no way for him to know. And of course... That's exactly the point of the people selling the calamari and people who sell calamari generally, generally who rushed to the defense of calamari and said, no, 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 no. It's very not likely the calamari. 
uh, because when it's bad, you know it's bad. You know it's bad. And they had a demonstration of how you cook it, and you can tell when it's done, and you know all the details are here. Calamari is not a problem, number one. And number two, there's a history of people every once in a while having a bout with something for a critical game, and people say food poisoning, and they say that's often not right and exaggerated. In this case, you know, he had eaten a lot of different foods, and the restaurant had served hundreds, if not more, portions of calamari that night, and of course, to the whole team, and no one else got sick. So uh, the evidence is pretty strong that it wasn't the calamari, but, uh, you know, you know, they're sensitive. They're sensitive. Gave calamari a bad rap. And here's the, here's the clincher of all this that, you know, I think Connecticut really didn't handle this right, you know, in terms of uh, giving calamari its due. You know what they ordered the night before the final game after this episode? Calamari. 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 Yeah. So uh, it wasn't the calamari. So there we have our gastrointestinal updates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whenever the, the point is whenever you hear a story like that, so they have a story, Kobe Bryant ate a bad hamburger. It's very hard to tell what it is that's causing the upset. And the athlete who you know reacts by saying it's a bad this or a bad that, not reliable. Take that with a grain of salt, so to speak. All right, so there was a nice article. That was the only way to describe it about John Kander. John Kander being half the songwriting team of Kander and Ebb. Um, as in? As in Cabaret, as in Chicago, as in Kiss of the Spider Woman, as Scottsboro in Still, Steel, Pe- Steel Peter, as in Scottsboro Boys, as in a lot of shows. And, uh, of course, we saw them uh, entertain at Symphony Space. You don't want me to tell that story again a million years ago. No, but I will say they were entertaining. They, they sang one of their songs. Yeah, well, they, well, they sang a lot of songs. It's a lot of their songs. But uh, but um, Fred Ebb, you know, John Cantor played piano. He writes the music. And Fred Ebb did the singing and sort of sounded like Liza Minnelli to some degree. And they sang a whole range of songs. Even uh, you'll recall them singing the song about Sara Lee. Oh, yeah. You know, Sara Lee Banana Cake. Special material, they called it. Yeah. <laughs> uh and of course, they brought the house down when they sang a new song no one had heard called New York, New York. So, Candor uh, is being written about because, um, you know, Fred had passed away a few years ago by now, ooh, almost 20 years ago. Uh, but Candor continues to write. Uh, he finished up some of the musicals that Fred Ebb and he had been working on when, Can- when Ebb passed. He's worked on some new material, and now they're putting out a show called New York, New York, which is going to incorporate, uh, here's a phrase you like, trunk songs. Songs that John Cantor has in his trunk, um, and some other songs John Cantor finished by himself, and also six songs that John Cantor now wrote with uh, Lynn Miranda. Uh, Lynn yeah, Lynn Miranda. He and Lynn Miranda, an unlikely team. Uh, in any event, he is he is known. They're, they're known for all kinds of songs. Uh, in Chicago, by the way, they have a figure here which I didn't really quite under, well, didn't anticipate. Uh, they're talking about their success. Chicago alone, the longest-running American musical ever on Broadway, hmm, has grossed more than $1.6 billion worldwide. Well, that's a winner. Of which, you know, he might see a few percentage points. So uh, <laughs> One could only hope. Well, he's got a nice place here. Uh, they have a picture of it. So, uh, wow. And, of course, they ask him, you know, New York, New York, title song. You know, people love it. That must be, you know, one of your favorites. And he says, never like that song. 
Oh, really? Yeah, never liked that song. And they uh, ask him, what do you like? And this was actually, I don't know if you remember this, but when we saw Kendra Nebbett Symphony Space, 1980, 1981, he said something like, I like the ballads. Mm-hmm. And they ask him, here, what do you like? And he says, uh, I like, uh, he says, I don't like screamers, I like ballads. And he gives some examples of a song from Curtains uh, and a couple of other songs which you never heard of. And uh, I'm familiar with their ballads, and um, I don't like them particularly. I like the screamers, <laughs> I guess. I mean, I you know, if they had to make a living on their ballads, uh, that would be a problem. You know, a house is not a home. Songs like that. Well, no, that's, no, that's not theirs. That's Burt Bacharach. But they have, they have, uh, you know, color me something or something like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah, you I don't, don't like the ballads. I don't like the ballads. Well, I think that. Uh, isn't it true? Lots of times, uh, artists don't know what's going to be the crowd pleaser. Yeah, well, he has different tastes. He's and the uh, and the person writing the article says, "Oh, come on, you know." Oh, it's by Jesse Green, and Jesse Green says, "I can name off the top of my head ten songs which are great songs, you know, just top songs as far as I'm concerned." And uh, Candace says, "Well, I appreciate that, but it's independent of me. In other words, that's your taste; it's not mine." So there you go. You never know. And finally, uh, we have an obituary of Mimi Sheridan. Mimi Sheridan, the uh, restaurant critic. Yes, food writer for the food writer and critic for the New York Times for many years. Yeah, many years when we were reading the New York Times. Yeah, she was the restaurant critic from 1976 to 1983. Worked for Vanity Fair, Time, New York, uh, Con. Condé Nast Traveler, wrote 16 books. Um, so she, she was uh, famous for a variety of things. Number one, I think she was the first female restaurant right. critic. In the Times, for in sure. In the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was interesting. What, what were the years again you just said? 76 to 83. Okay, yeah. Um, and uh, she also was famous for her disguises, which often didn't work. Is that right? Yes. Oh, I yes. didn't know that. And uh, she said nothing embarrassed her more than when she would, you know, be uh, going into a restaurant and they would know who she was immediately, despite the, you know. Well, she does say in the article that she's, she was treated differently when people knew she was a well, critic. Well, she said it was absolutely clear to her yeah. that uh, restaurant critics and, you know, valued patrons uh, may get entirely different experience at a restaurant than... You know, a first-timer. Right. Uh, or a random tourist. Right. Who's never going to be there again. Uh, and I, I think that's very true. That's why we have cultivated a few restaurants where we go people, back people again, and again and, and again and again. You know, it actually makes a huge difference. When yes. people kind of know you, uh, it, it's just a whole different feel. Right. It's a whole different but feel. But it's not always, it's not like you necessarily get special food or special no. treatment. Um, and I guess in some restaurants, people perhaps do, and that's what the whole disguise thing was about. Do, you know, uh, you know, are people getting their money's worth if they're not a celebrity or a regular? You're just warmly Um, received. And I think that makes a big difference in a restaurant. Right. And for some places, that's the case. For some places, you you know, you really do get the short end of the stick. Yeah. Um, If if, if you're new, if if you're not known. If you're unknown. Yeah. If you're, and you're not you know, particularly important. You know, I'm wondering if uh, if restaurant critics were 
I feel like she kind of caught the wave with restaurant critics. I don't, I don't know that restaurant critics were that as big a deal or uh, as prevalent uh, before she started with the Times. I mean, I, I think I'm sure they were there. But it feels like she was sort of in the vanguard of a bunch of other critics too, who kind of made this a more prominent well, profession. When, Am I wrong about that? No, I think I think you're right, and I, I think and also perhaps the era of the restaurant critic is over at this. Well, point. that could be too, every, people, because people everybody's talk to a critic. Her about that, there, I, I read an article where uh, somebody was asking, talking to her about uh, the whole idea: Do we even need restaurant critics now? We have Yelp, you know, yeah, a Yelp and TripAdvisor, right. and she said, "Why would I remotely care what you know? Random people I don't even know think about this. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's uh, I want uh, I want to be informed. I want to by someone who has you know expertise, knowledge, can you know." Tell me, you know, give me valued information about the restaurant, not just, you know, uh, some popularity contest kind of. Yeah. And, and plus, you know, frankly, restaurant review can be a fun thing to read. Uh, I certainly have read a lot of restaurant reviews uh, that pertain to restaurants I'd never go to in a million years just by dint of location or uh, whatever's involved in, in the type of restaurant. But it's right. it's fun to read. I think her reviews were pretty interesting. That's right. what I, I right. seem to remember. Right. So, you know, I think there is still a purpose for an informed and uh, well-written uh, assessment yeah. uh, as opposed to just, uh, yeah, it was a special night for us and we had a great meal, hats off to so-and-so, or, yeah. you know, or the opposite, which you read so often, um, people just railing about what a terrible meal yeah. they had somewhere. That sounds kind. Of, sometimes it sounds kind of impossible. It's like, uh, do they just have an axe to grind or whatever? Yeah. Anyway, so she also wrote. Uh, she wrote books with recipes, Jewish cooking, etc. Yeah, I didn't realize she was so involved with Jewish cooking, even though she was Jewish. Honestly, well, I will tell you, I learned to cook kasha. Yeah. From a Mimi Sheridan article. Well. Uh, in the New York you Times, know, had, and it, had, it had to be right around. That's when we were living in New York, when uh, you were going to Columbia and starting out well, at Devil's. Let, let me just let me just let me just say one thing about that. Two what? things about it. number one is the way to cook kasha is right on the box for Wolf's kasha. It tells you how to do it. Actually, um, it, it doesn't. Not necessarily. Really? Yeah. And no, it's, I made it's it. Perhaps it may be even been true. Yeah. Back then, oh, but they there, stopped putting it on the box. Uh, well, there, you know, um, there are certain nuances. Not yeah. everybody will um, pre-roast the kernels mm-hmm. in the pan. Yeah. Uh, not everybody uses an egg, cracks an egg yeah, into okay. the. Uh, um, but otherwise, kasha, it's just like uh, boiled so water always, in the I kasha. Yeah, no, yeah. no, it's uh, all right. Um, I always followed her instructions. Yeah, okay. I still have the raggedy little yellow piece of New York Times okay. Uh, okay. stuck in uh, one of my books uh, as a reminder. So, um, yeah, she was a great source. When, and she traveled all over the world eating. And when we first went to Rome, I followed her instructions about where to eat. Oh, really? Yeah. And we went to one of her favorite places and we had a fairly lackluster meal. Really? Which kind of got me off uh, um, restaurant advice for a while. <laughs> well, and you know what? Uh, part of it was, um, first of all, I don't know how up to date yeah. whatever I was going by yeah. uh, was in terms of when we were there. Yeah, right. Was it one year old? Was it two years old? Uh, yeah. Etc. cetera. Uh, so, um, so that was disappointing. Okay. <laughs> 
But in general, she gave a lot of good advice. And uh, I'll just read what she says. Uh, they close it with this. Um, she is not really interested in um, how chef, what chefs are trying to do, how they feel about what their mission is, etc. Okay, um, food writers in general, she told the New York Times in 2004, spend devote too much space to chefs philosophies they're not picasso after all this is supper so i don't want to hear about a chef's intentions call me when it's good okay good proof is in the pudding yes that's another way of putting it it's a good uh phrase good turn of phrase right, so i'm glad you made it through your filming <laughs> that was a riot yeah they had more equipment here than uh, a Beyonce music video. Well, you know, I haven't been in too many Beyonce music videos, but if you know, you well, know I'll take your word for it. The night is young. <laughs> it's young. All right. Yeah, it was kind of mind-boggling. We'll have to see what they come up with. Uh, all right. So uh, it's good. A good week. And now we got to go back into it. Back into... Uh, no, I think from here on out, we're going to ease. Uh, I doubt that. It's not the way it's been for the last few years. All right. But nonetheless, uh, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. We'll see you next week. We'll be right back.